0: Welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about life writing. I have with me Richard Holmes, whose new book, This Long Pursuit, Reflections of a Romantic Biographer, completes the trilogy he started with footsteps and sidetracks. Joining us also is Francis Wilson, whose latest book is Guilty Thing, A Life of Thomas De Quincey. And, Richard I'd like to start by asking you your book titled Reflections of a Romantic Biographer seems to me to be deliberately slightly ambiguous because you're a biographer of the romantics but also there's something about the romance of the way you do it and that seems to me to go to the heart of what this book what pulls it together can you talk a little about your footsteps technique And
1: Yes, um, I like the idea it's ambiguous it's a very good kick off actually and Pursuit is a name that goes back to my earliest book which is on Shelley Shelley the Pursuit, and I think yes, I'm calling to to the reader's attention the fact that I do write about what literary romanticism, but my approach perhaps can be called a bit romantic in its own way, and it goes back uh, to the idea I suppose the original footsteps idea I had years ago, which is the idea that a biographer is not just researching in the archives and reading letters, but in some ways making a journey after their subject following in their footsteps and of course writing about romantic subjects takes you all over the place Uh, so not not merely Scotland and England and uh, Ireland but France and Italy and so on and Greece and so you're following the the footsteps of your of your subject so that that would be the the first what I call indeed in chapter one there the footsteps principle and also something about the notebooks which we might Talk about. I don't know if Francis feels the same thing about following, following the footsteps of her subject. De Quincey would it be a wild one to follow.
2: <laughs> <laughs> not with the strength that you have. I mean, I see you as a method biographer, and a biographer who goes. I mean, it's not so much that you're a um, romantic biographer or a biographer of the romantics. I think you're a little bit earlier. I think you're a biographer um, of sensibility, and in both senses, you use sensibility. To get inside your subjects it's profound empathy and as a, a profound sense of otherness that you pick up and absorb and I think my approach has never been as as powerfully geographical mm. as yours i mean your your ability to to follow your uh, to follow your figures around the world is yeah, lot of geography. Long <laughs> geography. Mine tends to be. I was thinking about it um, this morning how I might describe it in comparison with what you do. I think it's more of a case study. Yeah. I sort of. It's it's much more of an um, an inward plunge, much more sort of vertical. I'm co- it's quite easy for me to just to um, to sit in one place for four years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you did go. I mean, this inward thing. You talked of writing. You said there had been lots of biographies of De Quincey. There hasn't been. A De Quinceyan biography of yes. De Quincey. I mean, what did you mean by a De Quinceyan biography?
2: I think a um, biography that, that plunges you into his mayhem. Um, the biographies of De Quincey so far are really excellent, excellent pieces of scholarship, and they take his look at his life very objectively you know, taking us through every stage. And what I wanted to do was, <laughs> was kind of remove the... Uh, Quincy lived in a world without any boundaries at all, and I wanted to remove those boundaries and just follow the threads of his obsessions. And he lived in a world that was entirely internal because he was an opium addict. So the, in the end, he didn't really have any sense of what reality was. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to create that, create that atmosphere.
1: And speaking, one of the great challenges, I think, of De Quincey is, uh, so much of his writing is autobiographical, but it comes from all stages of his career so that he starts remembering those crucial incidents in childhood really quite late on, doesn't he? And then he rewrites them right towards the end of his life. And for a biographer, and I think you, you handle this terribly well, actually, you have to, what sort of chronology are you using? There's the life chronology. De Quincey, age 20, going to see Wordsworth and Coleridge and so on. And then De Quincey, age 40, remembering all that. And yes. then De Quincey, age 50, remembering his rides and the stagecoats and all that. And that, the structure of how you structure a biography, interests me a great deal. And I write about that at some length. And the different kinds of chronology, what Francis called the going inward, which is absolutely important, and then the way you open up a work. And you see, and in De Quincey, it is is one of his labyrinthine images, isn't it? It goes on through and through like that. So, structure of biography, and just to give... the De Quincey opens with a a very daring thing, which... uh, Francis tells the story of a murder which happens in the East End of London that later in life De Quincey becomes completely obsessed with and he links it to certain things that's happened in his own life. Now that kind of linking, which I'd call it quite romantic linking, Mm. works incredibly well. But the book, her book starts, you know, you think you're going to get one of his dream passages or something. What you get is an account of this murder and it hangs over the book brilliantly and then you gradually come back to it. And uh, in the same way, um, I talk about when you're writing about scientific biography, which might seem very different, but actually the same problems of chronology, how research experiments get done and how scientists look back and they reconstruct what they did. And that's something I wrote about a great deal in The Age of Wonder. So the same kind of biographical problems, each, I don't know if Francis agrees with this, but each subject in the end gives you the solution. Yes. Just just by working on material, gradually the solution of how you're going to tell this story comes yes. out. Yes,
2: it does. Th- yes, I think that's absolutely right. In a sense, I, mean, I feel when I read your work that um, your subject is telling the story. In a sense, you're an amanuensis. Yeah. Well, that's one of the questions I want to ask with literary
0: biography, particularly though, the parallels you draw with scientific biography. Mm. There, it seems to be a special case because you're already working, aren't you, on. You're not working on a simply life, but a sort of body of work, which itself kind of comes off yeah. that. And as you, you know, Francis said, somewhere you're sort of secondary, and yet you need to put yourself into, mm. you know, you, somehow you're dealing with their style or mm. grappling with their style mm. or finding a way of channeling it. In, yes. on and their and you terms. mean particularly
1: with literary biography, Francis? particular... there is this question which you, you and I, we both taught in a teaching biography and one of the things your student always asks you is can I put myself into this book yes it's personal yes. pronoun um, I have a little story which is which goes right back in the early days what's not on footsteps but it's in this uh, long pursuit book which is when I first set up doing following Robert Louis Stevens in age I think 17 or something and he was with his donkey in the savannah and I literally the geography t- tried to follow his footsteps and he lived very rough in the fence, so did I, sleeping out in the fields and so on. And then every so often there were these massive Seven hour storms, which are the most terrifying storms I've ever seen, even in a balloon. I've never seen storms like that. And so then I used to go in rather shamefacedly to one of the little country auberges to seek shelter. And always the same thing happened. I had this passport, which in those days you had, had, your, you had to write your occupation. And I put writer in the passport, you know, I hadn't. I hadn't written anything. I hadn't published anything. And the, on the reception, Madame would say, oh, "Monsieur, uh, she looked at him. She I see you are a waiter.'" <laughs> and, and, and this, and then I imagine putting travel writer, and then you know, Monsieur, mais, I see you are a table waiter. <laughs> and, so, yeah. and this, this kind of blow to my pride actually became very important because uh, later on, I thought actually that's one of the, a biographer is a, a waiter. He's at someone's service. He pays attention in the rather deeper. He follows them, pays attention, and he's in their service or her service for maybe a number of years. And that's a kind of ne- one of the necessary elements of humility. I think it doesn't mean that you don't have your own point of view and so on. But I I tell that. The waiter story quite regularly do you have similar experiences. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love the idea of the waiter. It makes me think of those footmen who stand behind, yes. you know, yes. <laughs> resting their who stand behind their um, their masters while they're dining, sort of resting their heads on the wall, <laughs> waiting for something to happen. This, can I just pick up on something that Sam was saying? When Sam when Sam said, you know, pursuit obviously mm. long pursuit and pursuit picks up on. Shelley, the Pursuit. But Reflections also obviously picks up on darker reflections, Mm. the uh, the second volume of the Coleridge, yes. Are Are these, in a sense, your darker reflections as well? uh,
1: there, There are probably... There are sort of dark things in it, but they're also, just walking around that a little bit, the middle section of the book is actually called, not Reflections, but Restorations. Yes. And that is five studies of women writers and also scientists who I felt... Have not been. It's one of my themes. I feel conventional history and conventional biography. It's changed in my lifetime. When I began, before uh, feminist writing began, you had this tremendous sense that half, half the world, what Mary Wollstonecraft called half the population, was simply not there, really, unless you were Queen Victoria, not there. And I think this is, it's gradually improved. It's, it's still much the same in science history. So my central section is to look at people like Margaret Cavendish, who's incidentally buried just down the road in Westminster Abbey, one foot tomb, who is a scientific as well as a literary writer, to look at what happened. She used to be known as Mad Madge. If you put in Mad Madge into Google, you get Margaret Cavendish. <laughs> so uh, this is one of the jobs of a, a biographer, which is doing justice. I have a very strong feeling about this doing historical justice. And so this is a group of women going through to Mary Somerville, the early Scottish 19th century mathematician, who wrote the first really good popular science book called, not a great winning title, On the Connection of the Physical Sciences, but a wonderful book, beautifully written, very clear, covering an entire scientific view of the universe, from the stars down to little creatures on the seashore, and how she battled to get some kind of acceptance for that including a very unhappy first marriage and so on, and yet being naturally brilliant, she translated Laplace and so on, and being a, fa- a very interesting character in her own right, finishing up in Italy with two daughters and so on. Uh, now, th- that's one of these five sketches. So this is not... It's a darker in the sense that I feel... Uh, there's a historical injustice that needs correcting and I felt that and I have taken certain risks which I'm not sure I'm going to admit uh, uh, in the way I've done that so that would be part of it and I suppose
0: the last section but perhaps we shouldn't get on that immediately briefly Mm. wanted to interject so this question of the biographer's relationship with the subject Mm. do you sort of have to love them or do you have (laughs) to want justice for them or does something in their story have to resonate? I was very interested when you wrote about mm. Zelid, uh, yes. her biographer, yes. sort of cast himself first as her her sort of young yes. lover when she was in middle age yeah. and then as the person, her mentor, when she was young. You know, he saw himself yes. in her. I mean, does that, do both of you feel, do you have to have some sort of spark with the subject in the first place? Do you have to kind of, do you do you have to love them in some way?
2: Well, I know... Richard argues incredibly well in a passage in um, Footsteps which I always get my biography students to read that you do have to love your subject there has to be a kind of a sort of transference mm. between you and some of my students say well who would write about hitler then mm. yeah, <laughs> and, <yeah. laughs> but that's a different that's a completely different kind of biography i think i don't i think the relationship between a biographer and subject is absolutely fascinating and it's what richard's always written about mm. and it's explored at its finest in dr johnson and mr savage yeah. mm. and i there's something i've always wanted to ask you which is do you feel that um at the heart of any of the biographies you've written there's a kernel of autobiography
1: <laughs> I, I think that there's there's three books of are ways of avoiding autobiography but you're absolutely yes. right the third section of this book, which is called Afterlives, is, is exactly about this, taking very familiar romantic figures like Keats, like Shelley, and trying to see what happened to their reputations after their death through the way the biographers wrote about them. And so it's true, going back to Zelid, the, the Dutch intellectual, the fascinating figure, very appealing figure, I think. Partly, that's a study of this young biographer, Geoffrey Scott, who got quite emotionally involved with her when he discovered her in writing in the 1920s and how that altered the way he told the story. So I I look at that. Mm. And in Afterlives, for example, with Keats, I try and have a look at the way, for instance, the love story between Keats and Fanny Braun, how that has been dealt with differently. Some people made it central, including the filmmaker, and some people have put it aside. So depending on their relationship with the subject, uh, and in the case of Blake, for instance, who I write about, quite extraordinary thing. Blake, uh, when he dies, is virtually unknown. If he's known at all, it's as insane Blake, completely crazy. Male Mad Madge. It, ma- ma- yes, male Mad Madge. Well done. Very good. Um, <laughs> and, and he just got this group of fans called the Ancients, who gradually do get very ancient. And, and, and really, by the 1850s, so 30 years after his death, he's virtually forgotten. The Tiger poem has been, uh, none of his prophetic books. I think in his lifetime, he sold something like five copies uh, of Innocence Experience. And then, 1863, along comes this young biographer, Gilchrist, Alexander Gilchrist, who suddenly begins to research in And so it's partly the story of Gilchrist's work. And then yes. there's an added, added thing, that Gilchrist dies. He exhausts himself. He's got a young family his daughter dies uh, of scarlet fever and then he does himself and the book's unfinished and his wife, Anne Gilchrist, in fact finishes the book and this has been also partly written out of history and I try and tell her story Mm -hmm. as well and how she, the relay race of biography, she takes that up and writes about it and tries to be true to him but also true to Blake and of course it transforms. Blake's reputation now is absolutely based on the book they produced. So I tried to study that in a way. Is that darker or lighter? I'm not sure. That's that's a little lighter
0: Gilchrist kind of... Or well, Fifty Shades Sorted, of Grey. Yeah, <laughs> <yeah>, exactly <laughs> But I wonder what, what you think about the... when that sort of turns on its head and what you're to do with that. I mean, the sense that as a biographer, you know, sometimes you're able to do your subject a great favour, as Gilchrist did, or but sometimes you feel your subject kind of weighing on you. You spend... 10 years of your life in this person's company and you come to resent them and yes. loathe, I, mean, I call this Roger Lewis syndrome I mean famously yes. when Roger <laughs> yeah. took on Anthony Burgess and spent started as a huge fan <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and ended up writing a biography that more or less was intended as a sort of demolition of everything about Burgess's reputation up yes. to and including his hairstyle
2: no I, I find it much easier to uh, write about people I'm out of sympathy with mm. if I were in love with my subject, or just or just love them, I'd have nothing to say. Mm. I think I, I, you know, it would just be it would just be adulation. But if there's in the same way that if I came out of a film that if I come out of a film I've enjoyed very much, I don't have any any comments. But not like and I didn't like De Quincey, I was sort of out of sympathy with him. That's what I wanted to ask. No, you. Yes, I, mean, yeah. I hugely identify with him, yes. but you know, the parts of me that I find most unbearable are De Quincey i afraid, and I didn't like Dorothy Wordsworth mm. much either. Mm. And I certainly didn't like Bruce Ismay, who jumped from the Titanic. But it's sort of getting inside the behaviour of someone I, I'm not very admiring of mm. m- hugely, hugely mm. interests me. Yes,
0: you sort of wanted to have an argument
2: with yes. them or with yourself or about just und- I think it's with myself, actually. I mm. think it's a, um, wanting to understand why they behaved in the way that they did mm. and also wanting to explore why it is it matters to me so much.
1: I think the, uh, maybe the word uh, being in love and certainly not adulation I would include yeah. that in the thing it's very interesting you say uh, I picked that up with De Quincey and I sympathise with his his domestic life and so on is is, a, is appalling in a way what yes. he does to the rest of the family and so on but I'm interested you said that about Dorothy Wordsworth because Francis wrote this wonderful book called The Ballad of Dorothy Wordsworth which I think it's quite extraordinary and I find it Almost difficult to believe, I mean, the degree of sympathy within that book, and the way you reread her diary, which is her journals, which are so well known, but you reread them, in I would say in a passionate way. So I think the fact that you have reservations actually is very important. One of the things I've tried to describe in uh, in this book. Um, is what I call a two-sided notebook. Yes. Uh, which is, it's just a schematic way of putting this, but i found with students help, And very simply, it's this, that when you're on your searches, I always say to my students, of course, you've got a notebook. In any young writer, I say, have you got a notebook going? And I say one way of looking at this, a thing I've found that happens naturally, on the right-hand side of your notebook, all your actual detailed, factual, historical research goes all the precise stuff you're looking for so it may be archives it may be letters whatever it is the dates the hard material and then you need the left hand side notebook which is all your absolutely personal reactions which could be irritations embarrassments furies with your subject Uh, also dreams about your subject frustrations about how do I tell this story can I believe in it? all that piles into the (laughs) left hand side so you're acknowledging it it's also often where you can write very well because you're you've got something you really want to say it's uncensored but but it's completely uncensored and for any writer you must write uncensoredly okay what then goes back into the biography from the left-hand side of the page is often very little or nothing, but it's there. And I think, you know, Hemingway said that if you had that, it sort of has the effect, or Kipling said it as well. The reader feels it, even though it's unstated. And certainly for young writers, for any writer and for biography, I think to keep your balance, you need to have all this world of uncensored material going on and record it and write about yes. it. And often when you go to particular places, back to geography your immediate reactions to the places are, are not necessarily filtered through the subject, but they're very strong and powerful and they can come back and go, be fed back into the book. So I was querying this word, love, adulation, sympathy, empathy. These are complicated yes. subjects yes. and the biographer is dealing with them all the time and should be very aware of what, what's happening, I think.
2: Richard did you De Quincey was, mm. an, was an addict and Coleridge was an addict yeah. and I argue that De Quincey based his addiction on Coleridge yeah. he wanted he wanted to be Coleridge I was questioned all the time I was writing De Quincey people said but I, have you tried opium have you tried opium mm. and I haven't ever tried opium but I didn't think it was hugely important because in what what um, De Quincey was an addict it, I mean, what, my having one opium trip would make no wouldn't get me inside to Quincy head. Mm, yes. But I'm not an addict. Yes. How did you find writing about an addict yes. when you're not an addict yes, yourself?
1: Yes, and I'm not. A, I did once, I have once tried opium under a very strange circumstances a long time ago. It's a great friend of mine who had cancer and was being given an opium based drug. And one day he sat down with me and said, Richard, this is the moment. And he dosed me Was with this. Was this before Coleridge? This is before wow. okay. Yes, okay, So that, that's my one experience, okay. it, okay. which I regard as a great um, act of friendship. In Did fact. you enjoy it? it? It had certain things, but honestly, prepared, let me say a good glass of wine would take, <laughs> to take you far enough away. But um, it, no, it's not, not necessarily, I agree with that. And in fact, uh, we're talk, talking about uh, the empathy. With courage, the previous biographers have got completely fed up with him. Yes. Uh, this is very—it's very, yes. uh, very clear—and they can just about deal with the young courage while he's still writing. The they've been Wordsworth in the relationship, uh, yes, haven't they? They've been the sort of—and you stood the, the course—and <laughs> so you have to go through this. And it is like writing about De Quincey. Um, first of all, you you kind of worry about them a lot, and then gradually, just like if you had had a um, a member of the family who was an addict you famously, you you know they begin to steal things from you they're not telling you the truth exactly like your subject and you have to go through that this is where the left hand part of the notebook goes through very well and one of the things I found with Coleridge what register would you write would you use to write about him and earlier books often were sort of rather uh, tragic books with a lot of finger shaking and she'd never done that and I gradually found this mode of sort of very English mode, which is sort of comic, comic tragedy. Yes. Uh, and at his worst, and he himself has an amazing sense of humour, you can tell the really bad parts of the story, um, or his hypochondria and things. It's quite comic in a way, and he yes. sees the joke as well. And so this way you're keeping your reader alongside, and this goes in many books, uh, Dr. Johnson Mr. Savage the same. Yes. You, you're, you're carrying your... Reader and yet acknowledging all the feelings that the reader may have against the subject. You yes. have to
2: include this, I think. It's true. You could see Dr Johnson and Mr Savage as a comic novel. <laughs> yes.
0: yes. And, and <laughs> it would be filmed as yes, a comedy. It could,
2: I mean, Just this, sort, this big bear-like character and yeah, little spindly yeah, it, man yes, shuffling right. around. It, it, it's the, the, the
1: comic doer immediately. Uh, and even pictorially, it's that. And, <laughs> and the rather touching is, is Johnson, of course, writes the biography... Johnson himself is a young man, but the big, big bear all the same, with yeah. this little sort of dangerous savage <laughs> with his sword. Like a child of, with a gun, isn't yes, he? <laughs> yeah, and, and like a little wasp in a way. And, you know, he's a real... He's not a, he's a kind of... He collects, um, uh, having furies and arguments with people, he collects all this. And Johnson, after Savage's death, sits down to, to write his life. And you can see Johnson rethinking his own friendship with Savage... Um, and having to judge savage in a very particular way and in the end he makes a wonderful defense of savage based on the reason he says you know any anybody who was in savage's state of poverty in his sense of persecution the difficulties he had living in london would they have done any better than savage would they have lived or written better than savage so in the end he makes a, a great defense of his friend,
2: and this is how biography feeds into real life because de Quincey, and I mean, many writers apart from de Quincey were deeply influenced by, by Johnson's mm. life of Savage. Mm. I think when de Quincey was a down and out in, 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 in yeah. Soho, he yeah. was modeling himself on Savage. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone wanted to be Savage, they wanted to be Johnson's Savage, yes. the, sad, the man of sensibility. Yes, and so here's a biography that's impacting on the autobiography of the yes. young well, Is this, is yeah. this maybe yeah. the
0: repast Because I was going to ask. No. You know, there's, there's a sort of 1950s, 1960s new critical piety that, you know, the work is the work and that biography or the life is just a sort of form of gossip. Yeah. I mean, is that your repast to that, do you say? That idea that actually lives feed into work and...
2: Absolutely. Biography
0: is part of the sort of flow of literature.
2: Well, I think um, we live our lives according to literature. De Quincey never had an experience he hadn't read about first. And he, he really didn't. I mean, it, you can't find one. And so, no, I would...
1: Mm. Yes, I, I mean, it certainly when, when I began, for instance, uh, at Cambridge, I don't think I ever read a page of Shelley. He was absolutely out of the critical thing. And biography itself... Uh, was not taken the least bit seriously. And it began to change in my lifetime, probably with Michael Holroyd's books, which yes. have been very, very important, and are beautifully written books, and also books that challenge kind of orthodoxies. Uh, the, the writing about that, that gay circle of Bloomsbury had never really been done before like that. And it opened the whole subject up in a way. So I th- I think biography has become correctly a, a popular genre because it does give the reader a great deal and I've f- particularly found this in teaching and I, I know Francis will have something to say about this but I have found it has been a wonderful subject to teach partly for the first reason the students who come to you are not all panting 21 year olds you get a whole generation my students always include people of 20s but people in their 60s and that as a seminar people are beginning to share their own life experiences through biography. So it's it's wonderful for that, for a start. Um, People who are coming back uh, in any way to sort of tertiary education, uh, it reteaches them scholarship um, and archival research and takes them out into visual questions, portraiture, film, it's all part of biography. And then this thing I find quite, and I'd be interested if Francis had this experience, w- particularly with the more mature students. They often arrive. W- why they choose to study biography? They very strongly want to, and it's something to do with getting out of their own lives, yes. which it becomes tremendously important at, at certain, yes. for quite personal reasons. You, it gradually becomes revealed because something's happened in their own life. I mean, maybe quite simple things like their children have all grown up. They want to rethink something. A partner has died i 've often yes. had that, or even changes of face, all kinds of things reorient your life and to do something that takes you out into another time, another place, another identity those three yes. things seems to me to perform a wonderful service, and that 's what all biography does would do you well I mean, I
2: the, on, the only reason I write biographies is because i want to I want to be out of my own life yeah. i can 't imagine anything that would be less um less instinctive to me than to write autobiography. Yes. I want to be in someone else's life, and I've always wanted to be in someone else's yes. life. Yes. And the first reading I did when I was a child was, was biography. I've never had a, anything to say about about my own experience, mm. unfortunately. Yes. But other people's experience is absolutely, absolutely gripping.
1: Yes. And, and, and it can have all kinds of functions. I mean... That's possibly, uh, Francis. that's the way we avoid writing autobiography because we can use it in a different way. And uh, that's often I tell my students, think about it. Maybe you only need to be in a footnote and so on. But also it performs, for example, if you take something like, I don't know how many waves of feminism we've had now, three maybe, Mm -hmm. but there's no doubt the biography, the biography of women, has been tremendously important in this, and it, it. People often say to me, "Oh, the old Victorian thing of the role model—that's gone down." I don't think it's gone down at all. I think to learn how historical figures who are now important to you, how they lived their own lives, and particularly the difficulties they had to overcome. That's something biography can tell you very well. So it has, it immediate impacts on contemporary life. Do you remember this thing that Virginia Woolf, uh, she wrote this wonderful essay about Mary Wollstonecraft again, and it ends up, we we can still hear, we can heal her now, her voice among us, among the living. Uh, It it, it ends like that. And I would say, actually, that's one of the, Real ultimate purposes of biography. It's not merely to say what a particular life, a man or a woman's life, was like, but why is that life now important? Yes. To us? What does it mean to us? Yes. Now? So it's that dual track. So that's why I think it's a wonderful one. And I realize, do you realize, Francis, I've been doing this for 49 I years? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we're going to have to wrap up soon. I just want to ask, well, there's one thing in your book that you note that I think is interesting in the question of how biography fits into the literary canon is that you point out if you go into a bookshop uh, you'll you'll find your works are filed always yeah. under the subject yeah. you can't go to H yeah. for Holmes yeah. and read your canon it's you can't perfect. go to W for yeah. Wilson and read yours yeah.
2: does that bug you both it would be what do you think Francis that, that, that? it doesn't I... bug me but it really amuses me and really intrigues me and I wonder who made that decision yeah. So why is it that the assumption, you know, if you look for, you look for Richard Holmes on Shelley, and you find it under Shelley. So it's like Shelley yeah. on Shelley, yeah. or oh, Shelley on Holmes. Yes. You can't yeah. I think it's fun. It's funny and fun and strange. And one of the weird things about biography.
1: Yeah, it, it's true. I understand it's very reasonable. They should be categorized under subject if you're looking for. But it, it does produce weird things. For instance, yes, if you're looking up you under Quincy. Would it be under D or Q? I'm not sure. That's an interesting question. No one's ever All of those harm sales. Uh, (laughs) And Shelley is under Shelley. But Footsteps is under Holmes. And The Age of Wonder, my scientific group biography, they don't know where to put it. Mm. General Science, A... <laughs> uh, or, or H for Holmes. That that also happens. I, I think it's right that a subject should. But it would be lovely, wouldn't it, if there was a separate biographer's shelf where yeah. you could actually see your work together. It would be very
0: encouraging. That's what, yeah. That's what we must hope. I, I'd <laughs> like to end by just reading. Richard includes in his book um, a ten commandments for biographers. Number nine, which I think should be taken to heart by booksellers and practitioners everywhere. Thou shalt be immodestly proud of it, as it is something the English have given to the world, like cricket and Parliament and the full-cooked breakfast. Richard Holmes and Francis (laughs) Wilson, thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed that, please do subscribe to our iTunes channel to get a new Spectator Literary podcast every Monday.